Welcome to Gen Z Hoops, the Gen Z basketball coaching and sports business show. On this podcast, you'll learn from professional players, coaches, and executives from all over the world and see the court in a brand new way. And now, joining you courtside, your Gen Z host, John Hartafillis. Eric, what's going on? I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Really excited having you on. And obviously, um, we met through Sports Business Classroom. It was a great event uh, last week. I, I really took a lot from, um, met a lot of people from uh, friends and obviously networked with some really high up professionals. So really thank you so much for, for being such an integral part of that. And, and thank you for still joining the show. And, and really just to kick things off, I'm curious, I'm um, looking at, at what you've done. I'm curious that you were you were a psychology major in college. And I'm, I'm curious as to how that kind of translated into your your love for sports and and, and what kind of got you to where you are today, obviously with all the, with all the uh, salary cap stuff and, and all that. What, what, what did that look like for you maybe getting out of college with a degree that didn't exactly translate to exactly what you wanted to do? Well, let's see. So I went to UCLA and I had had a background already in accounting. I had already been doing a lot of, my grandfather was an accountant. So he taught me a lot about numbers and and business and whatnot. So I was going to be an econ major, which was the only real business major that they offered undergrad at UCLA. But after like a few, like a quarter or two, I was like, I can't do like four years of like supply and demand. And I didn't have the same passion. I loved the business side, but to me, I needed to learn more and broaden my horizons. So at the time I was dating someone who was a psych major. And so like, literally I like, I'll just take classes with you because I don't know what I want to study. So it wasn't like I went in with a goal to be a psychiatrist or a psychologist. And at some point along the way, I took some political science general requirements. And I really like that, uh, some constitutional law, which is really about reading the written word as law and understanding how to interpret it and how the courts make rulings and how it grows over time, which translates really well to what I do in analyzing the collective bargaining agreement and understanding the MBA. So there, there are elements of that. And so I ended up a double major, political science and psychology. And so psychology, you do learn a little bit about how people think and and patterns and tendencies. But at UCLA, it was more, I would say, more physical psychology, where it was a lot of study of things that were beyond really, it wasn't like you were studying abnormal psychology and, and all that, a little bit of that, but it was more physical science. So it wasn't really as much of what I had anticipated. So, but leaving college, I was working, I, I worked for my for a, an event company that I worked out of out of high school with for multiple decades, really. Even through most of my basketball career, I've had a second job on the side. And I've done things like uh, developing software, running their IT, building out computers, hosting their servers, managing a lot of their books, their accounting, all of the behind the scenes back, back end stuff that, that a company needs to run. And it was a great experience. And along the way, because I had a flexible schedule, I was able to go to a lot of basketball games and then at some point, I realized there's a job that pays you to go to basketball games. And so I kind of said, well, let, let's explore that and see what can happen. So I don't know if I mean, having a degree is important. Uh, I don't know if it necessarily matters what your degree is in as far as what you do. Uh, in some cases, it does. And be, becoming a writer with a, a website called Hoops World, and they just had an opening. It barely paid anything. This is kind of in the early days of social media and blogging and whatnot. And over time, got into the building with credentials through Hoops World. So got lucky in that, re- that regard. And then from there, it was just a matter of making myself valuable, showing people that I wasn't you know, a moron, you know, showing people that I, I understood like, okay, follow the basic protocols. Don't step out of line. Don't go into the locker room when you're not supposed to follow the basics of how, of being a professional. I think that's really at the core of it. And so I had a lot of corporate experience. And so using some of that, I think helped to understand like, okay, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of people where there might be one or two people who have a, have the say of whether you have the opportunity to be in a building that you need to, you don't want to kiss up, but you also don't want to insult them. So you have to find that balance of just being professional, but standing your ground and getting what you need out of the situation. So you can't be walked all over. But at the same time, you you can't go there and just do whatever the hell you want. So over time, I uh, got the time the LA Times job, moved on from that to Bleacher Report, learned the salary cap along the way pretty early on, and became an instructor at Sports Business Classroom, and uh, keeping pretty busy. So you know that's kind of my story. I don't know if if uh, the degree mattered, but as much as 
what I got out of college was extremely valuable. I learned maybe more than anything, how to have an opinion on a subject I had no opinion on. You know what I mean? Like you had to write papers or take exams and you just were like, I couldn't care less about some of this stuff, but you have to, you have to dig into it and you have to figure it out. And so there are times where I'll have to figure out something and I've got those skills of like, okay, what is this situation here? What is what is going on with this team? Or what's going on with uh, this rule change potentially? Why is there a, a question here? What is the, the meaning of it? Not just the superficial look at it. You know, a simple example would be right now, some teams are complaining a little bit about the buyout market and like why the Lakers and the Nets are, are getting the best players. And it's like, well, the NBA has a rule, right? You don't, if you buy someone out after a certain date, they can't be eligible. For, they won't be eligible for the playoffs. Those teams that are buying teams out would rather save money than prevent that. So there is a rule in place. So the point is, is not that rule. The point is, is like to be able to look at that rule and try to critically analyze it, not just take the the complaints at face value, but also dig into the meaning of the rule, why it's, there is a rule in place. What is the data showing like, well, how have buyout players impacted the playoffs? You know, spoiler, mostly they haven't. And are they all going to big markets? Of course, they're going to go to the teams that have the best shot of winning. Like that's normal, right? If you're set free late in the season and you've been on a crap team and you have a chance to go play for one of the best teams, I mean, duh, like if you're at the rec league and you have a chance to choose a team, are you going to go to the one that has the worst record or the best record? So it's wholly within the power of those teams not to save money and not to buy out those players and take that away. And so just to be able to critically analyze that, I think a lot of that comes from my background at UCLA, even though I didn't study that i mean there's no psychology or political science in it specifically but i think a lot of those skills that i got from just being a student and taking it seriously and working hard at it translates to what i do now it's so interesting and and especially because people my age right a lot of gen z we get so caught up in, in our major and what that entails so i was really curious as to as to what, what that meant and how that kind of career path looked for you after that because really it, it really doesn't matter and you were so right in, in, in saying that i'm curious you, you brought up the biomarket market I, I did definitely want to talk about andre drummond and blake griffin and all and the impact that they're having and you definitely it's been all over twitter as to how many teams are upset about that when it comes to the rule changes like that i'm curious just before we get into all the the stuff that you you with, with the sound cut that you've learned how does that really get maybe be maybe fixed or for example like what, what does the process look like in teams we, um, the, I, I, in the offseason the league really looking at those rules and change it because obviously there's there's the lockouts every every decade or so right and and they do really take a hard look and, and we kind of see that as, as a as a much longer gradual change when something happens and, and and teams get all bent out of shape over it how long does it take you uh, have you noticed after those changes start taking effect well there there are two types of issues right there are issues that are within the rules of the nba that can be changed then there are rules that are collectively bargained with the players union and those cannot be changed by the nba without the approval of the players and so all of the response to the nba season being postponed and all of the there was a rush to get it back on christmas instead of martin luther king day in january that was a contentious issue but it was contentious really within the players union it wasn't like lebron complained about all that his complaint really wasn't with the nba his complaint was really with the players union because they're the ones who accepted that change and voted to accept to move up the season and if they didn't talk to enough of their constituents, that's on them, right? The, the NBA is always going to operate, hopefully in good faith, but they're going to probably operate with money as a, as a motivator. And that's, that's okay. The players are too. So as long as both sides are, are working for the greater good, there's going to be some common ground and there's going to be some area of disagreement. If you're going to take away the right for a player to sign with a team, like restrict their free agency, which, you know, we know there's restricted free agency. That's that in and of itself is a hot button issue that a lot of players are very unhappy with and would like to see changed. And agents who represent those players, especially would like to see changed. But if you want to change on the player side, you got to convince the owners if you want the if the owners want something on the player side they got to convince the players and in this particular case of where players can go and buy out that's not just a rule change on the nba side right like the, this is something that the players would have to agree to because you're curtailing their rights to sign with a team that's not acceptable to them unless there's a you know a quid pro quo like you're what do they get back what have they been fighting for 
that fine, we'll do that. We don't agree with it. We'll do it. But you need to give us this. And so that's usually those kind of things have to wait. The more difficult ones have to wait for a lockout or a new CBA, which usually comes with a lockout. Like every other CBA negotiation typically has a lockout. Maybe we'll avoid it this time. Hopefully so. But really, that's why this is a this is not an easy issue, but it's also not an issue that is necessarily needing a change because there is a rule in place. The players have already accepted a rule. If you cut a player after a certain date, they're not playoff eligible. And that, I mean, it makes sense. Like you, it would not make sense for like on the last day of the season for like a team or, you know, close to it a few days before for a team to cut an all-star and then some other team in the playoffs suddenly gets an all-star player. So you could see why that, you know, you say, well, why would they cut an all-star? Maybe because they're in the last year of their contract, they're not going to resign. Similar to what happened with Andre Drummond, you would hate to see that on the last day. It, it wouldn't be fair to the competition. So they're, they found like that sweet spot of a date and the Cavaliers saved under $800,000, which is a lot of money, but it's also not a lot of money in the, if you look at their percentage of income, and, and I know money is tight this year because of the, the pandemic, people aren't in the seats and teams are not making the usual kind of money. So fine, forget this year. This happens every year. And every year, if it's more this year, it's more this year. I don't know. I'd have to look at the data, but every year there's buyouts and every year those buyouts typically go to the playoff teams. And typically the savings are in the neighborhood of a million dollars, which again, in the big scheme of things is not a lot of money compared to the kind of money that they make. Now, saving a million dollars is saving a million dollars. So clearly it matters, but those teams don't have to do it. They could waive the player after the deadline, not save a million dollars and not let that player go to that championship contender. It's already worked out. And as far as the other side of the coin, the other rules, like there are competition committee rules where the board of governors, so each team has a governor. Uh, they have al alternate governors, but really one person is in charge of making their, their voice known on behalf of the team. So you have 30 governors that have to vote on certain issues. And then there's a competition committee, which is like a subset of that. Uh, I forget, maybe it's 12. I forget the exact number of governors who look over. There are people with the NBA, there are people with teams, and they all have their opinions and they do analysis and they say, let's propose a rule change. And it doesn't impact the players in a sense of like, you know, like if you say, decide on the date of the trade deadline, let's change the day of the trade, that trade deadline. How does that impact the players? I don't know if it does, or I'd have to look and see if it's anywhere in, in the CBA. I don't believe so. I think it's probably in like the constitution and bylaws and, and rules that are NBA specific. If it doesn't impact the money and, and what happens with the players, then it's just a competition committee. They vote on it. And if it passes, then then the rule changes. And so those are more common and easier to do, but also really difficult because you have to get a certain number of owners to agree on something and they may not. So if sometimes there's obvious compelling issues and some of that would be response to the to the shutdown that were on the team side that didn't involve the the players that yeah they just sat down and but then there's things like the coach's challenge which is relatively new second year trying out they, they, they voted to try it out and well first it was it was they were going to try it out in the g league and then they liked what they saw they tried it out in the nba and now i think it's on a semi-permanent thing I, i'm not 100 percent sure if it's permanent or not but they definitely decided to carry it forward another year those are the kind of things where like you're not going to go to the players union and and negotiate that but maybe like wearables like if you're going to have a player where uh, an example would be a fitbit it's not that's something that's a consumer based but let's say uh, th it's different technology but let's say that you wanted the players to wear a fitbit to measure how much they were working out in their off time or in the game how many you know how many steps they're taking or whatever it is that's the sort of thing that you can't just decide on the owner side this is what we're going to do while that doesn't impact the players monetarily it does step upon their privacy rights and things like that so they can do it but it has to be agreed to by both sides so th that's more of a contentious thing that's more of a lockout or cba thing whereas deciding on the coach's challenge that's like a bunch of owners get together have a meeting decide it's what they want to do they vote on it and it becomes the new rule Definitely. It's so interesting to think about all the nuances that, that, that go around these things. And there's so many different ways to take this. I'm talking about the salary cap and, and, and the CBA. I mean, it can go in so many different places. I'm curious as to your, your, your title and you know, many of these roles as a capologist, right? It's not something that maybe existed 20, 30, 40 years ago, where, where it was something that, that people specialized in. And now it's so important. It's, it's not it's not something where people um, were, were doing that. We're really in that profession. And, and it was really something that was so uh, specialized in. I mean, now you obviously are doing it for NBA, for NBA TV, for, for obviously writing for Bleacher Report, all these different places as a capologist. What, what did that kind of look like for you in, in transitioning to that? And, and like, how did that maybe feel growing such prominence over the last few years? 
the prominence thing is sort of relative. I don't know. It's like, you know, I, I just do what I do and whether it's well received or not is, is kind of abstract. You know what I mean? Uh, it was great doing NBA TV. Unfortunately, with the shutdown, I haven't been able to do it since. They've kind of been on a, a limited situation, understandably so. So they're not flying me out to Atlanta and and doing that sort of thing. So I, I'm hoping that we can all get back to normal. And it's it's a blast doing NBA, NBA TV stuff. I've never really set out to do to be a TV personality or anything like that. But if you want to put me on TV and and have me talk about the stuff I know, I'm going to be comfortable doing it because why not? I mean, how often are you going to get that opportunity in life? So I, I take it as a real honor and a, and a privilege. So at some point early on in my career, I was covering the Lakers and the Clippers out of LA. I would listen to the radio and they'd be like, oh, they should trade this person for that person. They should do that. And I'd be like, you know, that doesn't sound right. And so like I found Larry Kuhn's FAQ on, on the internet. Larry Kuhn, of course, is the general manager of Immersion in Las Vegas of Sports Business Classroom and a good friend who I've had uh, the fortune of being friends with for a couple of decades now. So I met Larry and uh, in person at actually at the Pyramid, which was where they held the it was in it's in Long Beach where they held the summer league before they moved it to well Vegas was just getting started but before the the NBA moved to Vegas they had a, an, an LA summer league Long Beach summer league and so uh, we got to know each other there became friends kept in touch began to collaborate a bit and have had a great working relationship for a really long time and so gradually my knowledge grew is that you know i would ask i found that like larry has a an faq so like it's common questions so if i was asking larry a question i wasn't asking one that was in the faq right because if i had that question i'd go to the faq and i'd find it and answer if i was asking larry a question i was usually stumping him and i found that i was pretty good at stumping him not because of, of him he's you know brilliant but because the cba would be i would find areas of the cba that were ambiguous or not addressed or unclear and we would have to hash it out and sometimes that meant talking to the, to whomever our contacts might be team and league agent player whatever you can imagine and so gradually I've, i realized like covering the lakers for instance listening to the radio and hearing these nonsense things like there are there's a set of rules that are similar to like the block charge call which is a difficult call there's some very basic rules how high is the rim is a rule right like you can't travel right you can't run with the ball well you get granular on you can't travel well, what does that mean exactly? Like, okay, well, you know, if you catch the ball while standing on two feet, you don't have a pivot foot yet. So now you can move a foot and take a step with that foot. As long as the pivot foot is planted, you've now established your pivot foot. It looks like you've taken a step, but really you just established your pivot foot. And so it's easy to say, well, that's a step. Well, no, actually it's not a step because you're still in your pivot foot, right? So those kind of granular things, what's a gather? Like it's very nuanced, it's subjective and difficult to understand. And sometimes really almost impossible in slow motion to even determine asking refs to make these decisions real time. But those are rules that are court-based, but all that kind of ambiguity and complexity translates to the CBA itself. And I realized like, okay, there's a rule for a 48 minute game. And now there's a rule for like a 365 or, or set of rules for a 365 day calendar year in the NBA that really starts July 1st and runs to June 30th under a normal year. And so I realized like, okay, there's a game outside of the game. I've been watching just the game between the lines and I became more of I don't want to say more of a fan because it's kind of an equal thing. Being a fan of what happens behind the scenes without the game itself is kind of meaningless to me. But like in the context of watching the best athletes play what is, you know, what I view as one of the best sports, if not the best sport in the world, is it's fascinating how they intertwine, right? So you watch what happened. A lot of what you're seeing in the finals was created by decisions that were made maybe at the draft or in July under normal calendar in free agency or at the deadline in February normally. Those moves that are made are how teams get built, which is how they win. There's luck, there's shots that have to make, there's execution. But like if if you're you know, to stay with the Lakers, if you don't have Anthony Davis with LeBron, then how much of an opportunity? If you don't have LeBron, how do you get to LeBron? And so I realized along the way, like I needed to understand the rules. And then if you're covering one team, in this case, I was covering two. So if you're covering two teams, well, what they do is not absent of the 28 other teams. You have to know when players come up on contract, who has trade assets, what teams are rebuilding, what teams are trying to win it all, what teams are sort of in the middle, middle where they've got like the Grizzlies have John Morant. So now you're like, okay, we've got a cornerstone piece trying to build a contender we're trying to complement our current core if you remember all those kind of lessons we talked about in sports business classroom you have to decide like who are you well i learned that there's 30 actors competing against each other 
Then you have the NBA itself as a supervisor. You have the agents representing the players. And you have the players, which go hand in hand with the with the agents, but there, there's a slight difference there. And everything that goes into it, I realize like, okay, this is more than just a singular, okay, this is a basketball game. There's a game outside of that that creates that competition within the game. And so that's where our, my passion started to grow. And, and I think it's like anything. If you're passionate about something and you put a lot of effort into it, you can learn a lot. I don't think I'm, you know, I, I know how much I don't know. I know that there's a lot of areas I need to improve in because the more you learn what you don't know, I think is that's an ancient philosophy, you know, dating back to Greece and Socrates. So like, it's, that's real. Like it's, it's a fundamental human thing. So I, I look less at like, oh, what I've accomplished, which I have to appreciate and be grateful for. But look at, you know, I'm constantly doing the work. I mean, after Sports Business Classroom, which wrapped right before the deadline, we got into the trade deadline, the actual one. And then it was like, I had to do the work of processing what happened. It was the busiest trade deadline we've ever had. Why? What did it mean? What happens now? And then I just spent a few days writing up for Bleacher Report, anticipation of where the league is going. So writing up all 30 teams and where they're at. I mean, that was, it was a grind. I mean, I, I slept really well this morning, you know, last night to this morning because I, I finally finished. It's like 9,000 words, which a normal article is like 1,500 words, 1,000 words. A long article is 2,000 words. This is 9,000, but it's like, if you figure like 30 teams, 300 words, 300 words is nothing. And I'm doing 30 teams. So uh, it's a lot of work. So it just kind of goes to the, the theme of like, you got to love what you do. You got to be passionate about it, but you got to be willing to really work hard at it. So whatever I've gotten out of it, I feel like I've earned for the most part. I've been lucky to, and there's some fortune that you can't control. But I, again, I don't know if I'm, there's, it's rare when you're exactly where you want to be and and so i you know we'll see where i can go and and what i can do with this uh i love working i work for basketball insiders i work for bleach report uh, nba tv under normal circumstances uh, sports business classroom streaming on youtube but you got to hustle you got to find ways to bring an income especially this year where it's been a little tight just based on reality but mostly i enjoy what i do and i think that's what makes it easier to put in those kind of hours and to put in that kind of time if you don't love it you're not going to get there it's similar to being a player like if you don't really love the game it's unless you're so supremely talented that Shaq put in a lot of work but Sha Shaquille O'Neal was like so supremely talented as far as size and strength that he didn't even have to work as hard as some others to to be one of the best players of all time. I don't know where I stand on that front, but I know I got to work hard. And so you can't become a great basketball player if you don't work hard, barring those few extremes. You can't be great at what I do without putting in the work. And if you're a student, you, you're just going to have to work really hard. It's going to have to be something that you put in a ridiculous amount of hours. And if it's not in your passion to do so, then you got to find something that is. And that might take a while. You don't go to college and suddenly I know exactly what I want to do. And some people do. And that's great. I was kind of in the middle of that where I knew exactly what I wanted to do in a lot of ways, but ultimately it's not what I'm doing now. So I was doing things you know, for an event family, uh, an event company that involved a lot of writing software and doing all kinds of stuff I was really passionate about, but my passions have grown. So as a student, it's like, you gotta, you know, I'm still a student. So you just, you've just got to have that passion for it, whatever it is, and be willing to face the adversity and, and to handle a no, because you're going to get no's along the way. I'm a big believer in within morals, taking a, a no and turning it into a yes. So that's how, and, and obviously that doesn't apply to everything because there's some areas where a no is absolutely a no. And so you need to understand where there's a moral line, but within like the context of like analyzing trades and opportunities for teams, like, okay, you can't do that. Okay, that's a no. How can we find a way where it's a yes? Oh, it's impossible to do this, that, or the other thing. It's impossible, for instance, for the Lakers to keep Andre Drummond because they don't have the means to pay him. Well, that's a no right now, but let's analyze it and find the yes. And in finding jobs and finding opportunities and people saying they don't want to pay you for your services, there's going to be a lot of no's before there's a yes. So you've got to find that. And again, I want to establish that there are lines in, in life where no absolutely is no. And you need to understand you know, where that is. People's feelings and really important things, there is a barrier and, and a boundary. But within this kind of context, you've got to find that yes. And I think that's where perseverance and, and willing to understand that rejection happens and moving past it is, is really vital. I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, there's so much to, to dive into there. And I mean, if we have almost in the show right now with all the advice you've given and, and the breakdown you get into the CBA, but I do definitely want to touch into the stuff with sports business classroom. So you mentioned at the beginning how you, you know, you weren't sure about TV, but I mean, you have the professional microphone, you have the great backdrop. And on that backdrop, obviously it says sports business classroom, which I definitely want to 
jump into because I had such a great time uh, there last week. I'm, I'm curious, maybe you kind of touched on how you got introduced to, to, to Larry Kuhn and how that started up happening. How have you seen SBC kind of evolve? Obviously, this year was the first time the, short, the, the event had to go virtual because of the pandemic. But in what other ways have you kind of seen it develop in, in terms of just expanding so much to where we had a week where... I mean, here on the East Coast, it was 11 um, a.m. to 11 p.m. In the West, on the West Coast, 8 a.m. in the morning to 8 o'clock at night. Obviously, five full days of just basketball and learning the game. What, what did that kind of look like for you in, in seeing sports SBC really grow? Well, I'm trying to remember. I'm pretty sure, I'm trying to remember exactly what happened. But I believe what happened was Larry and I, I'm trying to remember. Let's see. I, Larry, at some point, took over SBC in its second year. In its first year, it was just kind of like an idea and a concept from Warren Legary and Albert Hall run Summer League and created Vegas Summer League and are tremendous leaders in, in the NBA community uh, as far as, I mean, Summer League in Vegas has become the Summer League and that's not how it started. Uh, but they also had the idea using their platform to create like a learning environment because there are so many people who want to get into the industry, but, and that's great, helping people, but, and not selfishly, but from a point of view of Vegas Summer League is about developing talent and Warren represents all as an agent, most of the top executives and coaches and Lee, he needs to have a pipeline of young emerging talent, which is not a selfish thing, but it's also self-serving. It's a mutually beneficial thing, giving people opportunity. And then he's growing something that is his business, which is, is fantastic. From that point of view, uh, I remember Albert and Larry getting to know each other and Larry taking over that position. At that point, you know, Larry needed help with it. And so he turned to me to, to be you know, a big part of it. He From teaching the, the what, what you got was a different version, which is not in any way less. It's just grown. It's just evolved. And it's the, the idea is that it's, it's very college oriented in the sense of you're going to take general requirements that everyone's going to get. And then at some point, you're going to break into groups that are going to be your majors. And so this wasn't how we did this virtual class because one, because of the situation and then also two, because it has grown and it's just changed. And so we would break people into like social media and, and actually media itself, like broadcast. We would break people into analytics and I actually originally, I think it was analytics separate from coaching. And then eventually we merged the two because there's so much commonality to it. Because, I mean, the analytics t dictates a lot of how you play. Analytics have such a strong impact on how teams play that we we felt like there was enough of a synchronicity that they needed to be taught together. And then the, the CBA, the salary cap, we would have what's called a deep dive. So the, that's what the majors would be, would be all of the students, let's say you had 100 students and you do 33 in one and 33 in another, 34 in another. So our 33 whatever students would go into our deep dive on the CBA and we'd have two, three days of really intensive study of it where we would get re really deep into it, a little deeper than what we got into the most recent one. But it, that not in a negative, we just spread out and you got more of a diverse education. And then we would actually have people join the deep dive who would pay just to take just the deep dive who weren't students of like a college age or, you know, not, not some of our students are 30s, 40s, 50s even. So it's not all college age students. But in our deep dive, we would get like actual people. Like I remember our first year, we would have, we had one of the part owners and top executives at the Cavs took it. Multiple people from the Spurs took it. The Utah Jazz, top executive. One of the executives in the, in the NCAA took it because there was some question, you know, they and they ended up moving on to the NBA in a position. So these people were sitting with our students, taking the same class with our students. And so you'd network a little bit and you'd get to know people. It grew from that to, you know, obviously the numbers grew, uh, but also Larry and I and, and all the staff Warren and, and Albert, we all learned from our successes and failures. And so uh, we never felt like we had failures, but we always looked at areas where we could have been better. And so the, the curriculum has grown, the immersive experience has grown, be it in person or on, online. And I, like the trade deadline, we it kind of, it wasn't even initially planned out to be a trade deadline. The, the first iteration of that was we would give each group of students a team and we would pair them up with an expert. So in person, you'd, you'd we'd be in a big room and you'd have six people maybe to a team. We'd have Bobby Marks. We'd have Nate Duncan. We'd have people in the media, Steve Kyler, Basketball Insiders, Danny LaRue, who's with The Athletic. I mean, I'm, I'd have to think Howard Beck has done, I mean, so many like amazing people have 
and so you're sitting there, you're getting to know this personality. And we have like Rich Cho did it, who's now I think the assistant GM maybe with the Grizzlies. I know he's in that kind of capacity. Uh, Ryan McDonough did it after he left Phoenix. Uh, it's just, it's too many to name. But the initial plan was, is we would just, it would be analysis of a team. And we would all be analyzing at the same time. And we kind of had an idea that it might evolve into something. And it kind of went the way that we thought it would go. But it went to a much bigger extreme than we thought, where the conversations started to be external instead of everyone discussing their team, they would go and start talking to other teams and would want to make trades. And we had the wherewithal to, we've given them the player salaries. I, I prepare that. And if you think about it, this would be in July. This would be around the second week in July, maybe the second week. And it would be right after free agency. So my job was to make sure all the salaries were up to date. Well, the salaries weren't even available necessarily because players were just signing the contracts. So I would have to like the work in that period of time for me, it'd be like 20 hour days. I mean, it would be intense, but it would be, it'd be a joy. And when it'd be over, I'd be destroyed for, I'd need like a week or two to recover. But uh, it, it gradually grew into like this trade deadline thing. And then over time, we're like, okay, now let's structure it a little bit more. We gave more structure to the trade deadline concept. And we didn't do this in this particular one, but give like directives from ownership, which would we'd give out midway through the negotiations. So like I, I represented the Pelicans one year and it was the year that we Brandon Ingram an extension. Uh, we had to choose between Drew Holiday and we were already going to make that trade. We'd already negotiated, but had we not, we had gotten a directive from ownership that we had to trade one of our two point guards because Lonzo Ball demanded or, or didn't want to play or Drew Holiday. No, I think it was Drew didn't want to play with Lonzo. That's what it was, which is ridiculous because they're UCLA guys and that was never the case. Uh, but like, that doesn't matter. It was like, this was your directive from ownership. And if you learn from like Ryan McDonough during his he, he was one of the hosts of, of the most recent sports business classroom. You might have noticed hints of like there were times when he was the GM of the Suns where he had to deal with ownership that was a challenge where and that, that's not to criticize the ownership of Phoenix. They're doing really well right now. But it is a challenge that managing up to the ownership level can be harder than it is actually making a trade with another team. And so we added that element as well. Uh, as far as how the class has grown itself, we've just gotten better at it. Larry's really good. And in general, like they filter the students. It's not just like, oh, we'll take your money. Like we look at the candidates who are applying to take it and we keep the numbers low lower artificially because we feel like if it grows too much that it waters down the experience. So we've toyed with closer to 90 to 100 we've toyed with like 60 where how much should we as a as i guess as a company be focused on making the most money which yes it's important but ultimately i don't think that's what sports business classroom is about and it's never really been about and i think that's one of the reasons why it is what it is yeah i don't care how much you know as far like i'm not counting the the, the dollars that that we earn and it's and, and like oh we profited this much more than the, like to me it's never been about that like we can do a better program if we limit the number of students which limits the number of how much money we can make and that's okay because ultimately it's about grooming young player young players young young talent into the industry and to kind of wrap i mean we've we get people jobs and ultimately that's the goal and it, it may not be the goal necessarily for every person it, it might be just like they move on to another career outside of sports, but learn how to be more of a professional, learn how to think in, in a different way about how to get a job, how to keep a job, how to be good at a job, how to use your mind. Because ultimately, that's our, you know, our, our best resource among, we all have resources, but probably our best resource beyond maybe our inherent goodness or you know willingness to do good things or whatever uh is probably the our ability to think and, and use our, our capital in that way if that's what we're going to call it and so you know i think that's something that i treasure the most you know the relation i keep relationships with the students if they if they want if they reach out and they want to ask me questions or or whatever i have a discord server where a lot of the sbc folk from the most recent thing have popped in and we've got some really heated conversations going around the trade deadline and beyond and what's nice is is i set up this discord and and in the beginning it was just me you know it's you set up a, a you build it and they will come and hopefully they'll come in the beginning i would have to be in every conversation and now it's like it, it's got a life of its own so but really getting the people jobs like we have people like 
Amber Nichols running the the Capital City Go-Go, former student. I see assistant coaches, development coaches, former students. I see people in the video room. I see people as operations assistants. Uh, we have a student uh, from not the most recent one, but the one, the virtual one in August, who's with the Nets now. It's just wonderful to see. And for me, it, it's probably the most rewarding part of it is seeing students be successful because that's ultimately what our goal is, is to help people get to their goals, right? People, students come in with goals. If we can help them get there, we can't put you there. You're not, you got to earn it. There's, there's no like easy ride and, and we can't guarantee success. But you know, I've seen like Dave Defer has become a very instructor at Sports Business Classroom. He started as a student. Uh, we see students form podcasts, right? Like like we're doing now, right? Like it's tremendous. And I don't know what path everyone's going to take, but you walk that path and you can't guarantee success, but it's great to see someone like yourself out there trying to to walk that path and make it happen. And if I can help again in a little part, that's that's a joy for me. I appreciate it so much. And especially what you just said about the, the community that kind of sports business classrooms fostered and what can kind of result of that. Obviously a big thing of like that is like you coming on the show is a, is, is a big part of that. But also just some people that I've spoken with uh, through um, SBC that maybe are help or can help me out with this show, and and now we've built a connection. And when this when summer league happens or these events happen, and now now there's actually a, a friend group, uh, and, and there's something I think a little bit more than that because there's a common interest there too. So definitely so much to go into with that. And obviously it's, it's great seeing the progression of SBC. I had no idea about about the way uh, the in person the way it used to be where everyone was kind of branched off of the person. Like Howard Beck, for example, past guest on the show, great guy. Like it's, it's imagining someone like him or obviously anyone else that you mentioned. I'm kind of walking you through things is is just surreal, and I can't wait. You know, for more things we see in the future um hopefully we're able to be in person soon and, and something like that would be would be phenomenal that's the goal um definitely so i'm i'm, I'm curious um you obviously obviously we, we mentioned the trade line that was a, a i would say that was my favorite part of the of the whole event because um, everything else definitely we can watch on on demand we can watch it and learn from that as we go along and, and the information will always be there but the experience i think at least for me of kind of being on the phone and calling up all these other teams to make these trades in that little tiny window was definitely, I think for me, the the, 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 the urgency of it is what really brought out the best and made me realize how much I kind of enjoy this. I'm curious maybe about some of the, not, maybe not specifically, but some of the maybe moves that were made in terms of like people really going outside the box to show, or, or maybe the way that was articulated to you as to saying, wow, okay, these, these students really get it. The trade deadline itself or the mock trade deadline kind of gives a little bit of empathy maybe like of what it kind of makes you feel the experience a little more tangibly of what it might be like. And obviously it's not all done over a two hour window. And by the way, that's grown where like the moment, cause I, I represented 15 teams because we had just the way we broke it in. Uh, we didn't want to have, we, we had one team that only had one person and that just was a logistical issue where someone I think had to drop out or just couldn't make it or something like that. So, uh, but the idea was to have two, three people on a team. So it could be like a conversation and, and, for, we, we don't want just one person being the dictator and saying, this is what we're going to do, because that's not how teams are. Ultimately, there's a negotiation with internally and a debate internally, and we wanted to foster that. And so uh, I represented the 15 teams, but that weren't assigned to students. And what I noticed is like almost right off the bat, once everyone got their teams, which was a few days, a couple of days before the, the actual deadline period, was that people were already negotiating and were already reaching out to me. And so that and that has grown uh, in, in sports business classroom in person. We kind of made it like a two day affair uh, where like the first day would be prep. And the second day would be execution. So kind of like, I guess you would maybe say the first day would be like the moratorium where you can like agree, but you can't execute. And so in that kind of construct, like, I think you learn what it's like, to, what kind of questions, how difficult is it? How hard is it to negotiate? And it's, we, it's not exactly like, but we, like I said, we've had former executives and they've said, no, I mean, obviously it's different. And they've said like, in some ways it's even better. Like, it'd be great if you could just throw everyone, the top executives in one room and make them work it out like that. Like you could, there's some benefit to that. Like, I don't know if it would, you know, really work, you know, but it, it's an idea. Uh, I mean, it's not a real, it, it's not going to happen, but it's like the the concept is is amusing and, and entertaining. So as far as the actual deals, like you're, you're forced to make trades with people who may have different experience and knowledge and, and understanding of the value of what they're trading. And that's also kind of how it is in the NBA too. Like you have teams who like, sometimes they're just teams that don't get it and you can take advantage of, and it's all subjective value of a player, value of a pick. I think for the most part, our group did well. If there was an area that our, our group as a whole was weak at, they didn't value picks and protections enough. They were willing to just trade picks left and right not really caring about how they protected but like you know the the bulls just did trade 
in the real world, two picks to get Aaron Vucevic, right? And the Nuggets traded a first last year to get Hampton, and then they traded a first with Hampton to get Aaron Gordon. So, you know, there's a certain amount of like, yeah, there's all these rules that we kind of give you and, and stress how important it is to protect this and, and value that. And then you get to the real world and you're like, look, we taught you all this, but we can't control if some of these executives don't listen to our advice either. Uh, and I'm not criticizing the Nuggets. They made a great move. And I'm not criticizing the Bulls. They made a very bold move. I'm curious to see how it pans out. They now have two All-Stars. A year ago, they had nothing. So, uh, And Zach, Zach Levine has earned that. So, But as far as the actual trades, I thought like our Sacramento Kings team did really well. They were sort of uh, the winner of, of the process. Everyone wins, you know, but as far as choosing like who did the best, they made five trades, which was a high number, but they were all really solid. And, and they were all, some of them were very minor, like trading Bielitsa. See, I get, now I'm confused between the real world and, and the fake world. He <laughs> went to Philadelphia in my world. He went to Miami in the real world, but it was, it, it, it was close to the kind of reality of what, what was going to happen. And like, I thought the Kings had a good grasp of like reality. They got, they did like a trade where they got Mo Bamba and Al Farouk Aminu, uh, and they gave up a couple of seconds and Corey Joseph and Justin James. And so like in the real world, uh, they did trade Corey Joseph, Al Farouk Aminu was traded, but Mo Bamba, like who knew that the, the magic in real life we're going to go with the youth movement, but that's ultimately not our assignment. Our, our assignment isn't to emulate what we think the real world team is going to do. The, the assignment is to do what you believe is right for the team with your analysis, completely independent of the tendencies or the history of who that team is. You have to decide what is the right move. You're the new GM, you're the new whatever. Make the best move you can. So if you want to trade LeBron, Go ahead and trade LeBron. Uh, we didn't. I was in charge of the Lakers, so it wasn't like he was assigned. But you have to justify and explain why you traded LeBron and, and back it up. And some of our teams did really great presentations, but their basketball wasn't as good. Their basketball decisions weren't quite at the same level. And ultimately, we we decided to prioritize the basketball over the presentations. So all the presentations were good, uh, and the students did a great job. But some did a little better than others at the presentation. Some were a little more polished, but ultimately we went by the basketball. But I mean, like the Kings made a bigger move where they traded Buddy Heald and they got Kelly Oubre, but they also got a 2027 first unprotected. And to me, it's like, man, it's like a, an unprotected first in 2027. That's what the Warriors gave up, right? Like Steph Curry, who knows where he's going to be? Clay Thompson is already still not clay right who knows if what his return will be we have no idea like that could be a massively that could be like the number one pick so there there were teams that were dangerously uh willing to give up stuff and so the kings i thought were the ones who benefited the most now i believe that you were the wolves right so you gave away carl anthony towns and then again it goes to the whole idea of like you're doing what you think is right not what the the wolves would do and, and they sat pat they didn't but we don't know where they're gonna go uh but you got julius randall who is an all-star so you traded an all-star for an all-star and you got some young players you got a nice young prospect in the center in, in mitchell robinson you got neely kina and kevin knox two prospects neely kina you have to pay if you want to keep them and you got some draft considerations uh, i think it was a couple of firsts uh but they were all in this draft which is a good draft but maybe it's top heavy and so you're getting the mavs and you're getting the knicks both teams that are probably in the playoffs and so i could argue that now you guys also included Jalen mc Jaden mcdaniels and that was a sticking point for me in judging your team as far as where we placed you and i think I know that your team was discussed as one of the top teams, but that that to me kept you from being like a number one team because to me, like they just drafted Jaden McDaniels a year ago. So that to me was equivalent of giving up a first. I think he's a really nice wing prospect, big wing who can potentially be a defensive stopper. I don't know if that who, what is what he'll be, but that's something that he might be. And to give him up in that kind of took away getting one of those firsts so to me like if you said like you did a trade like you got the Mavs first let's say the Mavs first is going to be 18 or 20 like yeah if you traded Jaden, Jaden McDaniels for 18 or 20 that's fair like okay that's that's a trade right there I could I if you made that and that was the whole trade so to me you got one less first for Carl Anthony Towns than you did for like in the big pick in the big picture. If you got two firsts and Julius Randle for Carl Anthony Towns, we could argue it, we could debate it, we could say Towns is too good for that. 
the the gap between Randall, but that's subjective and that's arguable. So, but now it's not two first. It's like, so does Randall plus one first, is that better than, so those are the kind of questions, you know, Carl Anthony Towns is under a long, long-term contract. So that's the benefit. Randall's going into the last year of his deal. So in theory, he can leave. And so that's the risk, right? So if you get Randall, is he a long-term fixture or is he just a temporary thing? And if he's temporary, now it really matters what you get for those firsts. So if you're getting two firsts to offset the risk that Randall could leave for Towns, fine. But you're only getting one in my book because you gave one up for for McDaniels. And both of those picks are in this draft. And both of those picks are probably in the, at worst, the Knicks make... I mean, I guess the Knicks miss the playoffs is is your best case if you're the Wolves in this. And if they miss the playoffs, then you're probably getting like 13 or 14. They're not, yeah, they can win the lottery, but the odds of that are super slim and it happens. When you make that move, you're assuming they don't win the lottery. And so like you're trading Cat for a 13, at best case 13 and let's say 18, right? For Carl Anthony Towns. The odds of a like a 13 in the draft and a 15 in the draft are probably at best rotation players. Well, not at best. At best, they're starters. At best, they're all-stars. But like in a reasonable expectation, they're rotation players, borderline starters, and you know maybe six men, maybe seventh men. That like, if you just go by history and look, what are the usual results of picks in that, that range? That's kind of it. Like most all-stars are top five, top 10. Like really your top five should be an all-star. Top, top 10 should be a starter. Anything after that is borderline starter, maybe an all-star rotation player. So if Randall leaves, you better hope Knox becomes something special because really you're just getting a couple of borderline starters for Carl Anthony Towns. That's like, that's all of that you guys had to figure out in a very brief period under a very difficult circumstance but the real job is very difficult as well. There were other trades that stood out. I operated as the magic in a couple of trades. I thought I did pretty well, but ultimately I was reactive. So I'm trying to think what else. John Collins getting traded for Lonzo Ball was really interesting, and that was very debatable. That was fun and interesting. But there were picks like the the Rockets, the 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 Bulls gave up a first to get Eric Gordon. It was a complex trade, but it didn't like there were a lot of moves that didn't necessarily make sense that I scratched my head on. Uh, Aaron Gordon to Cleveland, I was a part of, and I thought that was a good trade. I got a first out of it. Cavs gave up a first, and that I thought was like reasonable because, in, and in real life, that's more or less what happened, right? They got, in real life, they got Hampton and a first. Here, they got Larry Nance, Torian Prince, and a first. So, it, you know, I thought that was, that was reasonable. There's other minor things i did one other deal denver i thought was really interesting and i thought it was close to reality i gave up gary harris isaiah hartenstein and a second with zeke naji to get victor oladipo and pj tucker uh, obviously that was before pj tucker was traded to the bucks and in the real real world the rockets barely got anything for victor oladipo they got some decent stuff they technically got a first for P.J. Tucker, but it probably doesn't convey as a first, probably conveys as a second. And then Gary Harris did go to Orlando, and instead of Zeke Naji, they did R.J. Hampton. So that's like equivalent, like it's a young player who was just drafted. And Isaiah Hardenson did go in trade out to Cleveland, man, I'm, I'm trying to keep track. They got JaVale McGee back for him in real life. So like, I felt like some of the moves that were made weren't exactly what the league did, but I thought that in a lot of cases, we were pretty close. I thought by and large, our students did it like a great job. They did great presentations. I don't even know how you guys had the time to, to prepare your presentations, given that you were in class all day and negotiating, and then you had the deadline. And then very quickly, you're having to turn around the next day and do a presentation. I thought it was really tremendous to see. I, it, you asked me like, how has it grown? The in-person trade deadline, be like okay we're done then all of our experts would go up to the top and they would talk about their experience with each team and we would probably have like their student uh, one student from each team stand up while they talked and there might be a back and forth where there would be like why did you do this and we might have a minor q a but there wasn't like presentation period where the team had to present why there was no slideshow powerpoint visual there was there, you weren't really grilled on it and judged on it in the same way. It was kind of like, okay, we're done. The experts would talk and then we would all sort of meet and huddle. And then we would say, okay, this is who we think should win as the best team or whatever. And even then, I don't even know if we would do that. I don't even think we did the best team. I know because I was always like one of the experts and my team was always the best team. And I would always remember, like I would remember if they singled me out. It was I would always have to argue like, man, we killed it. 
you know, no, no one came close to what we did because my teams would always kick butt. That's just the way it is. Uh, and it wasn't my, it, was, it wasn't me making the moves. It was always my leadership, making sure like our team was on course and I could at least keep us in a, a grounded reality. And our team always seemed to do well, but I, I, I had a blast and it, it's always fun to see how it grows. And it is, I, it is one of my favorite experiences too. So as a teacher, and I, 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 I love the, the mock trade deadline. I left out some of the, the moves. I don't know if there's any others you wanted to touch on, but by and large, I thought we echoed for the most part reality. The weakness was the value of picks, but you know that's also a weakness that we've seen in, with NBA teams where they don't properly value their own picks. Uh, thank you. I mean, it was it was incredible hearing you go through all these and obviously balancing reality with what happened in, in sports business classroom. Was, it was incredible to see you kind of uh, balance the two um, live on air. But I'm, I'm curious, though, because we obviously we're talking so much about these picks and, and you, you talk about how NBA teams sometimes have a fire sale and give away so many for, for a star player. You've seen it right with with the James Harden trade uh, with Paul George a few years ago. Um, and, and, and you see their teams like the like the Thunder who have who stock up 25 plus picks over six, seven years. And there's other teams that give away their every single first pick they have for years to come in the hopes of getting a star player in a championship. What do you, what do you, what have we kind of seen with that trend maybe in recent years and, and where do you see it? And what kind of impacts you think we're going to be seeing for those teams maybe in five, six years? Well, what's interesting is it, it's a give and take between like just the economy of, of the NBA. So back when in a previous CBA, rookie scale contracts, their salaries would be basically dictated within a small margin when the CBA was written over the life of the CBA. And so, for instance, player would be making, let's say, a million and then 1.2, 1.6 and 1.0 or 2.0, like over a four year period that would be dictated. And when the cap was at a certain level, that made sense. But then in 2016, the TV deal came in and then in 2017, they had a new CBA and things kept growing and growing. And so there was a disparity and they fixed it along the way. But there was a growing disparity of what first round picks were making compared to what players were making. So there was a point where having those picks was extremely valuable because like to buy to get a player you needed to pay in general like 4 or 5 6 million dollars and you could get a have this draft pick for one or two. So it was super economical. And then there were other times where maybe the cap wasn't climbing and you'd be paying like 3 million or 2 million for a player that would be one you'd have to develop and it would be cheaper to just get minimum players who you could develop and especially like go to the, the time the Lakers were winning in the in the Shaq Kobe era to a degree in the Pow Pow Kobe era uh, they were not as they didn't view at that time late first round picks as especially valuable because they'd get a player who would be a borderline rotation player and they wouldn't have the time to develop them since they didn't get the minutes they wouldn't develop and so it'd be a waste of money. So for them, they would trade away those picks. And so like we've seen growth in that in positive and negative directions. The economy, the NBA dictates the value of what a first round pick is. We went through a period where the value was so high that we would see massive stars being traded and very, very few first round picks. Paul George got traded for Oladipo and Sabonis. Sabonis was a prospect, a good prospect, but a prospect. And Oladipo was a guy who was overpaid at the time, who was basically, he was a, a, a borderline starter, or certainly a starter, but like arguably a six man who was getting paid like 20 million a year, which was like near max money. So it's all based on the economy and the economy fluctuates. And so there was a point where the Lakers needed to get AD. If you remember from our conversation uh, in our class, I did with Dan Purcell on draft capital, Dan Purcell formerly uh, with the Pelicans, we kind of broke down like, all these rules on how you should value a first. And that's going to evolve as we discussed. But all of those rules that we set out, we said, forget all of these rules. If you have a chance to get a top five player, an elite chance, you know, there's a point where all that has to go out the window because you're never going to get as good of a player as, as this particular player. So the Lakers sort of set the market with Anthony Davis, multiple, multiple picks and pick swaps. And if we go back far enough, that's what the Nets did with the Celtics to get Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce backfired so badly on them. Never mind that they're better than the Celtics right now. But for a really long time, I mean, the Celtics are what they are because of that. You know, that's why they have Jason Tatum. That's why they have Jalen Brown. So you couple in the economy and you couple in the re the overreaction to what happened with the Nets. And for a really long time, teams were super stingy on trading picks. And now that that pendulum has swung. I mean, it's just teams react. They, they act off of what has already happened. They act at what their other contemporaries are doing. And some people are progressive leaders in, in 
making moves that others aren't thinking or doing. And some are counter, like they'll do whatever everyone's doing. I'm going to do the opposite of that. And you see that like in the stock market, you see that in life where some people believe like if the herd is going one way, you go the other way. And there's some value in that. And then there's also some value in like, if the herd's going that way, because there's a bunch of predators coming, picking off the herd, then yeah, go with the herd. Don't get picked off by the predators. So like, it's, you know, there's all these kind of human dynamics and psychological dynamics that go into it. So where we are now in the league is that like the Lakers set the market with Kawhi, which was a drastic change because we'd just seen Paul George and DeMarcus Cousins and a whole bunch of stars be traded for minimal value in picks. Kawhi didn't get a ton of picks. He got Pirtle and DeMar DeRozan and I think one first. Well, now the market is like picks and swaps. So we've seen like, okay, well, the, the Clippers needed to to contend and get Kawhi and to get to Kawhi they needed to get Paul George and to get Paul George they needed to do the picks and the swaps and James Harden like the Nets needed to get James Harden they did the picks and the swaps and you go like all of these massive trades are that that's what it is right now that's not how it's going to always be it's going to fluctuate well it'll change but right now that's the going rate so when you say like well I want my team I'm a fan of the whoever and I want my team to trade for Bradley Beal right now he's not available but if he was you got to look at what the market's been and the market has been two firsts pick swaps young talent like you have to give away everything for a top player and you have to decide is is bradley beal really that is he an anthony davis is he a Kawhi leonard a paul george that gets you a Kawhi leonard and paul george is a top whatever player in his own right and you go through all of that kind of uh, james harden is a top player so is bradley beal that i don't know and a team's gonna have to decide is his lack of playoff success because the wizards have not given him the right team and there's been injuries john wall got hurt uh, they've had a tough go at it, not all to their own fault. Uh, and then they've also had regime change where Tommy Shepard has taken over as the general manager. Uh, and so he's only had so much time at it and it takes uh, several years to stamp a team with you know, with your personality. So when I see all these teams giving up firsts to get stars, I'm like, yeah, go for it. When you see the the Bulls do it, I'm interested. I'm curious. I want to see what it amounts to. I, I like a bold move there, but they get they don't get an A. They don't get an F. They get at this point they're they're getting an incomplete grade because uh, they have new management. Arturis Karnisovas has had the job since before the season. He had made one move, Patrick Williams in the draft, and uh, and he signed Garrett Temple. That was it. Everything else that he had on that roster, he inherited from the guy who got fired, right? So like, are you going to reinvest in that roster? Are you going to pay Zach and Lowry Markinen and just keep this team together when the last guy got fired for it? Or are you going to make bold moves? And so to me, the moves that they made signal that maybe they're moving on from Markinen uh, because he's he's kind of a power forward, but he's really like a in the modern era, there's a blur between the four and the five. There's basically big players, wing players. And, and ball handling guards. And and I would say that marketing is a big, not a wing. So it's just, it's an incomplete. And then when we look at the other end of that, so we have the teams that we just talked about that are are going for it. And you could say, yeah, makes sense. Anthony Davis. Yeah, makes sense with the Clippers. Yeah, makes And we could say, okay, I'm curious to see what the Bulls are doing. They didn't give up as much. They didn't give up. They gave up a couple of firsts, but you know, they're protected and they could, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so if they fail, which is fine, those picks will turn to seconds and they'll be protected, which is something that, you're, you know, the students didn't fully grasp in the extreme uh, as much as they should have. But the opposite end of that is the benefiting from those picks, the Rockets, obviously the Thunder, and you even downplayed them. You said in the 20s, they're in the 30s, like they have so many picks over the next seven years, there's no way they can use all of them for themselves. But it, you, I think Sam Hinkey of the Philadelphia 76ers no longer, but he kind of embraced the notion of of the process is what it was called but like the draft is really hard i think that's ultimately what that message was you can be in the draft and have the number one pick or have the worst record in the league and not win the lottery end up with the fourth pick or the third pick or whatever and it may not be a good draft and you just may get the number one pick and the number one player and it might not be a franchise player or you get a franchise player who doesn't stay healthy or you get a franchise player, but that's not enough because you can get a Carl Anthony Towns or you can get an Andrew Wiggins. Minnesota had a couple number ones and it didn't do anything for them as far as winning. So I think the the logic is you're probably only going to hit on one out of four. So you better have four. You know what I mean? Like if you're going to guarantee have one of those four hit, you better have one of those four hit. Fine. Now you got a franchise player. And of those three, you probably have maybe one is an all-star so maybe you have a franchise player and an all-star 
And maybe you have two guys who are just starters or two guys who are six men or rotation players, or maybe one of them doesn't work out at all. So maybe one's a bust. One's a franchise player, one's a starter, and the other one's a six man. Well, you can trade those young players or you can, you know, you can build off of that. And then when it comes to like deeper firsts and like if you have too many firsts, some teams are, are like, oh, I want to buy a first. I'll trade you a first in next year's draft for this first in this draft. And that's kind of what happened with Hampton right? Like that's how the Nuggets got Hampton, right? Like they wanted Hampton, they traded a first to get him, where basically they said, we'd rather have Hampton now than the first, the player we might get with the next year's first. And I might have my facts wrong, but I think that's like the idea of it. And so like there are teams that are willing to do that. Like you're you're basically saying, I'll buy a pick now for a pick later. So I could see the Thunder trading some of their firsts. Celtics did similar kind of things when they had too many firsts. And then what I want to pair with the Thunder, they have either cap room or massive trade exceptions. And they can keep using their trade exceptions and then trading away other players to make other trade exceptions. And the reason that that's important is, is that they can make these trades with these picks without also trading players. So they, you can, for instance, take in a player, let's say you have a trade exception that's 20 million. You can take in a player making, let's say 18 million for a first and you're not having to give away Shea Gilgis Alexander or Lou Dort or some of the players that you want to develop and want to keep. So they're taking a long approach. It's probably one that you have to have commitment from ownership where they understand, okay, we're not going to make the playoffs for two, three years. Uh, that's okay. And a lot of times you don't have that kind of luxury as a, as a general manager, as a vice president of basketball operations, whatever the, the top title is. So those are the, all those kind of factors that you have to consider. Like, what's the point of having all these picks if you're going to get fired and you don't get to use them, right? A lot of executives make moves that are moves that they make because they have to save their job. And it may be a move they don't even believe in. And it gets tagged to their resume that makes it difficult for them to get the next job. But if they didn't make that move, they would have been fired. So now, like, do you get fired for not making a move that you don't believe in? Do you make a move you don't believe in and get fired and then have that on your name and you have to really sell when you're trying to look for your next job like I was you know pushed into that move I had a stupid owner and how much do you want to like go to your next job and say the owner of the team is stupid when they think well now you're going to be talking about me when you're on to your next job and talking badly about me so you can't just go and talk badly about your owner, you have to do it in a way that is political and expresses what happened without throwing the owner under a bus. So always, it's a difficult world to it's a difficult business to, to function in. And it makes you appreciate the success that when, when a team has that success, how hard it is to get there. And you have a lot of people who have sour grapes and say, Oh, they got lucky. Lakers are lucky that LeBron chose them. Yeah, they are. They were floundering before then. If LeBron doesn't choose them, I don't know where they'd be. Maybe they'd be stuck in the mud still. Rob Palinka is a great GM because he has success. He has success because LeBron chose the Lakers. Where is that, you know, line? I don't know. And and I'm not criticizing Rob at all. You look at any other GM who's had success. Did the Warriors have all that great success? They said in, in interviews that, you know, we're, you know, that we have a great process. Like the buzz was is like we're light years ahead of every other front office, da da da. Well, were they? I don't know. They had Steph at a great price because he was hurt. They drafted Clay. They didn't trade him. Great move. Kevin Durant wanted to join them. They got lucky because of the cap spike because the union rejected cap smoothing. We won't get into that. But there was all these technical reasons why KD ended up in Golden State. And now they're struggling, right? Well, are they going to navigate out of them? Are they above the curve? Are they smarter than everyone else? Maybe. Is what Sam Presti doing in OKC smarter than everyone else? There's no answer. Like, it's just you ride it out. And sometimes you're lucky. Sometimes you get to success because of the moves you made. And sometimes you get to success because of luck. Sometimes you get to success because someone got hurt on the other team. You know, it, it's it's a sometimes it's just a simple bounce of a basketball that determines like the fate of three franchises. Like literally that ha that has happened. That's why Phil Jackson ended up the coach of the Lakers because Allen Houston's shot went in instead of falling out. And that's why the Knicks went to the playoffs. That's why Jeff Van Gundy had the job for another year. That's why Phil Jackson didn't get the Knicks coaching job that's why phil jackson ended up the coach of the lakers it's if that shot misses he's probably the coach of the knicks who knows if shaq and kobe ever get past that line and we have a completely parallel universe that is completely different that's what's amazing about this in industry you could do everything right and fail you could do everything wrong and succeed that's part of life though and outside of this industry too you know in politics in business in the world some people fail up and some people with the best intentions with the best hearts and make all the right decisions end up losing and that's that's a tough reality but you know it's a, fortunately in our business we're not dealing with life and death we're dealing with 
basketball, a fun game where you throw a ball through a hoop. No one dies, hopefully, God willing. Definitely a make or miss league, and, and, and everyone talks about that. But when you, I mean, just really this this episode in its entirety, something I'm definitely going to have to go back and listen to because there's just so much in here about obviously the decision making process. And it really is just so, there's so many nuances and it's so technical, but it, and it's so interesting to hear about it all. And, and obviously, there's so many different examples and such a great history of the league to kind of go back and study and see, okay, where, where, where could this have been different? Um, why did the decision, why were the decisions made? Kind of what, what what's kind of equivalent? Um, and, and Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show because really there, there was really so much here to unpack. And I, I, I'm really happy about this episode and, and can't wait to listen to it over and, and hopefully our <laughs> listeners um, really take a lot from this. Well, no, I appreciate it. I mean, I'm glad that you, first of all, invited me. I'm glad you participated in Sports Business Classroom. I hope that we can do it again in August and see you in person. It's a different experience immersively where I'll, I do office hours virtually, but we actually have office hours at like around 11 o'clock at night at one of the cafes in Vegas where we just sit and talk about what we've learned and I get to know the students a little better and we can talk, share stories. Uh, it, it's great in person, but we get what we get. You know, we're all sort of in this situation. So I see that, you know, I'm, I'm glad to see you're, you're doing well. You, you're, you've got a nice show. You got your Xavier basketball going on and, and, and you're on the right path. So keep working at it. Anytime you need anything, reach out. And uh, to the listener, same thing. Uh, I recommend Sports Business Classroom. You can find it at sportsbusinessclassroom.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Eric Pincus, E-R-I-C-P-I-N-C-U-S. Uh, I do my best to respond to tweets, but when things get going, like when there's a big deal, I get flooded. Uh, but in a casual time when not much is going on, I'm pretty good at responding. And uh, you can find my work, of course, at Basketball Insiders, Bleacher Report, and a few other places. So, And on YouTube, I've been doing some YouTube. Uh, I haven't done anything since Sports Business Classroom because it dominated my time, but uh, I've been doing videos on, on YouTube kind of breaking down each team's draft pick table, which I need to redo because all these teams made trades, uh, or just breaking down like what, what I see and what's going on uh, in the league. I, that's a time suck. I love doing it. It's just there's only so much time that I have. So uh, that if I leave with one message, that's probably it. Uh, you know, I, we need health, happiness, love, all those things. But time is really our most precious commodity. So uh, use your time wisely because you just don't give it away. I, if there's one, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm not 20 anymore, uh, but I still feel very young and have a lot of energy. And uh, I, I really, as I, with the wisdom of, of age, if anything that I've learned is that time is really the most precious thing. So use your time wisely. That's my advice. Definitely. I can I'll definitely recommend sports business class to everyone. I, I know definitely I rec uh, recommend our listeners to the show to reach out to you and to, and to look at the sports business classroom. Um, like you said about time, I'm still 20. So both in terms of having a lot of time, but also uh, not being able to do much when I'm in Vegas, I will definitely be at those 11 o'clock office hours. So can't wait to see you there. <laughs> All right. Look forward to it. Thanks for listening to Gen Z Hoops. Make sure to follow, like, and subscribe on Instagram, LinkedIn, and all major social media platforms at Gen Z Hoops. You can tune in and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and every other podcast platform on the planet. Get ready for the next episode.